guys liked me when I did the confession, but I'm not sure how you're going to feel about me here in about five minutes. No, I'm kidding. It's the word of the Lord, and so let's just make sure that we understand it. We're considering or, uh, continuing our series here through 1 Corinthians, and we have found ourselves in chapter 11. And this morning we are dealing with a passage that most scholars and pastors would consider to be the most difficult uh, chapter of the Bible to interpret. And so there are a lot of uh, challenges here, and I'm only going to deal with a few of them just because otherwise it becomes this really lengthy academic exercise. But I have lots of resources for you um, if you're interested in some of these because it is a fascinating passage. It has generated a lot of interesting conversation, not only between Libby and me for many years, but especially the last week or so. But also because Mike and I have seen this one coming for a month, month and a half or so, we've been having a lot of conversation about it and all the pastors and their wives actually, uh, and elders and their wives got together uh, this last week in order to discuss this as well. So uh, fascinating passage, very interesting and thought provoking. So if you'd like to go deeper in it, again, I've got a bunch of resources and Mike has a bunch of resources for you, but I'd like to begin here this morning With just the first words from Genesis, you remember these, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the first words of the Bible, we imagine a chaotic universe, formless and void, And God entered that chaos in order to carve out a place for us, a place for us to live safely and to find good work and purpose and a place to worship him. It was a well-ordered and beautiful creation, but you know that our ancestors rejected their creator, and so he evicted them from the beautiful place that he made for us. And he could have totally abandoned us at that point. He could have let creation slip back into chaos and void as it was before. But it seems that our creator loves us. Even now, outside paradise and exposed to great dangers, God still governs here. We see evidence of our creator in the beauty and order of our solar system. We see it in DNA. We're not sure about the timing or the process that God has used to create, but all through creation, we see his intention to sustain life and to create a place for us to work and enjoy him and worship him. Now, it's one thing for us as Christians to notice God's hand, the artist's brush. It's it's one thing to notice him in astronomy or physics or what have you, but it's another thing to notice his hand in our very lives. It's easy for us as Christians, as monotheists, to say, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when I see mountains and trees and dolphins or whatever it may be, it makes me want to glorify God. But when I look back at my life, I just see a lot of people and bad choices and things like this. And we forget that God governs his creation not only in solar system sense, but also in the trajectory of our lives. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Paul is speaking to the um, 
leaders at the Areopagus, and he says, for he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That was Paul at the Areopagus. Bible tells us that God governs his creation. He still enters the chaos in order to make good, safe places for us to live and to worship. Also, in Isaiah 46, God says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, That I will do, so says God. Claiming sovereignty over all of his creation, not just biology, but the very course of our lives. God still governs here. He still enters death and darkness in order to bring beauty so that we can live and worship. And one of the most powerful ways that God does this Entering his creation in order to bring redemption. One of the most powerful ways that God does this is through the family. He invented a structure for relationships that create safety and purpose and worship. Sin and trauma do infect our lives until Jesus comes back to recreate paradise. But while we wait, if we follow God's design for family... We can carve out these little Edens, little places of goodness and laughter and shelter and grace. But there is, again, a design to it. There is an order to it. Right in the beginning, before the fall, Genesis chapter 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And in 1 Corinthians 11, our passage this morning, verse 7, we learn that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man, referring to the creation of Eve taken from part of Adam. The passage goes on and says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that's New Testament. There's a very clear hierarchy that is built into the design pre-fall. One of the curses of the fall, as we see God speaking to Eve, one of the curses of the fall was a breakdown and a rivalry between husbands and wives. She was designed for him, to help him, but at the fall, they both became jerks. And we have seen throughout world history abuse and disrespect. So what can we do about this curse? How can husbands and wives interact with each other? And the answer is to sort of blow off the blueprint of the design. 
And it's very consistent, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, there is order in the family. When you combine it with the love of Jesus, you have this incredible place of redemption in a fallen world. Marriage is a framework for raising up the next generation of Jesus lovers. Marriage is a display of theology in a lot of very significant ways. First of all, God the Son is subordinate to God the Father, and yet he is equal in glory. And the forgiveness that is needed in marriage is a constant display of grace. And so marriage becomes this beautiful place for displaying some of our core doctrine. Marriage is also a workhorse of sanctification as marriage confronts our selfishness and calls us to higher levels of maturity. Marriage shows God's sustaining and redeeming redeeming purpose in his creation. Now, our passage this morning, as you heard when Bud read it, our passage this morning uses the word head to describe the husband's position. Verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And we see as a cross-reference in Ephesians 5.24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The word head means authority. The husband is more responsible here than anyone else in the home for making this safe and joyful place that God intends for making this little Eden. And if he does that, working hard to provide and by studying the Bible so we can articulate certain values and by loving his wife as Christ loved the church, as he does that, then each person in the home can focus on knowing God more, loving God more, loving other people more. And we don't want to over-spiritualize this. There are a lot of things like gardening and budgeting and watching movies that make for a joyful, peaceful home. It's what home is for. It's what dad is supposed to do, and the wife is in the position of helping him to do it. So there are many things to do in a family, and the creation order puts the husband in the primary role there. And it sounds fun to be in charge, but that's a pretty heavy responsibility that I've just described. As we define this word head and how it's used throughout Greek literature, it's not just about leadership. It's mainly about primacy. It's mainly about primacy, not just who gets to decide where we're going for dinner tonight or something like this, the boss. But this word head relates to primacy, which is why Paul tells us that woman is the glory of man there in verse 7. God designed wives to give glory to their husbands. She gives priority to him. She honors him. I love the way that C.S. Lewis plays with this in Paralandra, where the Adam and Eve counterparts are a king and a queen. Submission is really ugly when it's just letting him drive, as if that's the extent of submission. Submission is ugly when we boil it down in that way or we make it just about who's the boss. We are talking about two extremely dignified and honorable children of God who love each other by performing role duties. And sometimes people try to help leaders in ways that are embarrassing and frustrating to the leader, truly helping needs to be more than just pointing out what could have been done better or going along with whatever he says with kind of a rolled eye. It must include a careful demeanor of respect and of giving glory and honor. Primacy, 
primacy, not simply leadership, but primacy. Now, this passage is famous because it deals with head coverings. This passage is especially about Paul telling the Corinthian women that they needed to start wearing head coverings again. And it is unclear to us in lots of debate about whether this means just during worship services or even in private. Is it just when women are praying and prophesying or is it at all times during a service or is it just whenever they pray at home or just when they pray in a worship? Like we're not sure. We don't know the uh, cultural situation well enough to understand exactly what he's saying and there's debate on both sides. So what I'd like to do is bump it up to a higher level of looking at the theology that we do know because God is a clear communicator and sometimes he just doesn't tell us stuff. That makes us wrestle with it more as we try and figure out what it means. And, uh, uh, but at some point we have to say, I'm not totally sure what that means there. So let's look at the overarching theology. Women wore head coverings throughout Roman culture for hundreds of years. And they symbolized, first of all, respect for authority, usually a father or a husband. And they also represented a lady's virtue. In other words, she is not sexually available. The only path toward this woman is through um, her guardian. And these were widely used. Head coverings were widely used. They were a clearly understood symbol in the Roman world of respect and respectfulness. So why did Corinthian women stop wearing them? And again, we're not sure. Paul doesn't define the problem like he sometimes does. There was probably some theological confusion. They might have thought that their freedom in Christ released them from the creation order. But there was probably more than theological confusion because we're talking about the Corinthians. (laughs) In other chapters of Corinthians, we see them excluding the poor from communion. We see them slandering really good leaders. Uh, We see them condoning gross sexual sin. Head coverings are a way to show respect for authority. They were a way to display character, and respect and character are endangered species at Corinth. So it isn't a stretch to imagine a church where women operated very independently from male authority, sort of rolling the eyes and that kind of a thing, and where the most influential women were not the most mature women. So Paul tells them, you need to use these head coverings again. Oh, but I took it to the goodwill, and I can go get another one then. You need to go get these (laughs) head coverings again in order to bring your heart back to an appropriate attitude toward male leadership. The theology behind head coverings made sense to people in the Roman Empire. It symbolized something for them that also happened to be biblical. And that happens sometimes. A cultural value overlaps with a biblical value, which is probably why Paul can say in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a wife to pray? Uh, Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And ancient Romans would have said, no, that's kind of weird. That's why he says, judge for yourselves, because this was a culturally understood thing. And the Corinthians, probably as a result of feeling like they were theologically free and probably because of attitude issues toward leadership started taking them off and doing wild stuff and paul says hang on now isn't it kind of obvious that you shouldn't be doing this 
Judge for yourselves, but our culture, our culture is different. If Paul says to us, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? We respond, um, I'm not sure. Head coverings look a little misogynistic in our culture. So here's how we navigate this passage here at Cornerstone. Women at Cornerstone do not wear head coverings. In case you were worried, like, oh, no, is he going to start making us wear head coverings? (laughs) Women at Cornerstone do not wear head coverings, not because we disagree with the theology of headship or primacy of the husband or male leadership. We don't change our beliefs in order to fit in with our culture. But head coverings in America do not have obvious symbolic meaning. It would be ambiguous at best, and that puts us in a position of needing to think long and hard about how to express the theology in culturally appropriate ways. I'll give you an example. In Jordan, where our family is moving soon, head coverings are called a hijab, and they symbolize Islam. So when Muslim women convert to Christianity, they often stop wearing them. They want to identify as a Christian. So they do the opposite thing that Corinthian women did in order to do the same thing theologically. Does that make sense? By taking off the hijab, she is in solidarity with her Corinthian church sister, both of them publicly demonstrating that they belong to Jesus and they have the commensurate character. Theology doesn't change But the cultural expressions of theology do change. Paul says, for example, in other places in the New Testament, he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Most of us in America don't kiss people at church. Uh, We just shake hands and we hug. We find different ways to express the theology, that we ought to greet each other warmly and enjoy each other, that this should be a loving place. We all face this sometimes when we read the Bible. In fact, you might say most passages do this to us, this one in a particularly challenging way. But we all face this. We have to figure out how to, first of all, recognize the authoritative message in a passage of Scripture, the underlying theology that needs to change us. And then second, we need to figure out how that's going to look in real life. How are we going to actually do that in our situation? So if we don't do head coverings, what do we do? The basic theological pieces are this. First of all, families have a clear structure with wives giving their husbands primacy. Second, we infuse that structure with the love of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that love defined here in chapter 13, just a couple of chapters ahead of us. We infuse this creation order structure with the love of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the result of that is God entering into darkness with this powerful mechanism for redemption, creating these little Edens. So that would be the basic theology here. And in Corinth, that required head coverings. If we're not going to use head coverings, we need a really good reason for it. This passage, honestly, has bothered me for a long time. Uh, If we're not going to use head coverings, what are we going to do? And some people will say, well, a a wedding ring. But a wedding ring doesn't represent 
living under the authority of a husband in our culture. That's not a clearly understood symbol of the theology of creation order. If we're not going to use head coverings, what are we going to do in order to make it clear to ourselves and everyone else that we agree with God's good design? Because we are not exempt from this theology. Besides that, we live in a culture very different from ancient Corinth where we don't have a lot of positive examples of this. Either people are very offended by the idea of a creation order and reject it, or you have this ultra-conservative church environment where women are treated like staff. And the most important contribution that she can make in all of her gathered femininity is a cupcake recipe, or at best, running the children's ministry. So we've got to think a little bit harder than that. We don't have a lot of positive examples here. So we need to show the world what it looks like to live under authority with brains and with strength and with full-orbed spiritual gifts. A couple of things that I think might be helpful to us as we think this through. A couple of things. First of all, I'd like to run through the four cardinal virtues. And second, I'd like to give some examples of women in the Bible. But first of all, the four cardinal virtues. This is how the early church summarized and categorized Christian character. And the four cardinal virtues are courage, justice, temperance, which is self-control, and prudence. Courage, justice, temperance, and prudence. Now, what does that look like in a lady? Again, the question that we're dealing with here is if we're not going to use head coverings, but we do want to, in culturally appropriate ways, express the theology of creation order, God's good design, how are we going to do this? And looking at virtue could be helpful for us. So first of all, courage, sometimes called fortitude. Thomas Aquinas referred to it as firmness of mind. This is to act on our convictions, to go beyond the call, to make sacrifices, to do hard things. To remain firm in the face of pain, fear, danger, uncertainty, intimidation. That's fortitude or courage. And the, the church needs courageous women who can face down the real challenges of Christian mission and spiritual warfare and human conflict and evil and misfortune. Proverbs 31 tells us about the lady wisdom Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the days to come. This is the opposite of the fear that we see in some Christian communities who shelter women. And it's the opposite of secular communities who make hard women, not courageous or filled with faith and joy, but, but this sad cynicism. We need courageous women. We also need just women. The second of the four cardinal virtues, justice. Justice is to give others their due, to treat with dignity and love. Uh, this, is a, this is awareness of my fellow man. All of us are gifted at being selfish, all of us, making sure that my life looks exactly how I want it to look protected, happy, or whatever it is that I want it to look like. But justice helps us to look outside of ourselves. Justice pays attention. 
We need women who care more about justice and doing what's right than they care about their own lives looking just so. The third cardinal virtue is temperance or self-control or moderation. This is the balance of desire and restraint. The balance, the wise balance of desire and restraint. Self-control is not the absence of passion. Self-control is not the absence of overwhelming, sublime experiences. Self-control is restraint of passion. Most people, men and women, either work too hard or play too hard. We need women who can work hard, but they know when to let things go. We need women who know how to play hard and laugh hard and indulge, but also know when to stop. The fourth and final cardinal virtue is prudence. Prudence. And uh, George Bush ruined that word for us, but it's a good word. (laughs) This has to do with wisdom and understanding, the ability to make right decisions. Not just speaking the truth, well, I'm just telling you the truth type of thing. Not just speaking the truth, but saying it beautifully and knowing when to say it and how to say it. Prudence comes from understanding the world and knowing what to do in a broad range of real situations. That's prudence. And so it comes with a lot of time and a lot of experience. If girls are going to become prudent, they need to face the real world. They do not need a fortress around them. They need to know that we have their backs. But we need women who can look into the eyes of suffering people and dangerous people and know what to do. When Eve talked to the serpent, she did not respond with prudence. How are we going to prepare our girls to interact with that and respond differently? And sheltering them is probably not the answer. We need women who can face the real world. Many of them need advanced degrees and serious conversations about their spiritual gifts so that they can help the church to actually push back the gates of hell. So four cardinal virtues that help us to think about what Virtue looks like in the life of a lady. Courage, justice, temperance, and prudence are helpful grids for thinking through femininity. And also examples of women from the Bible. And there are lots of examples. I'd like to talk about Esther for a few minutes. I think she's a really, really special lady in the Bible. And I look forward to meeting her someday. Before we get to Esther, remember this famous definition of femininity from 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, if we can combine that gentle and quiet spirit with the four cardinal virtues, then we've gotten a long way toward a good definition of femininity, biblical femininity. And I think we see a good example of that in Esther. 
We're told that Esther was an unusually attractive person, but more importantly, uh, she had a beautiful heart. Um, she won the favor of this guy, Haggai, and he advanced her to the highest place in the harem. She was a prayerful lady who trusted God in very dangerous times. And she's to credit for one of the classic statements of faith in the Bible. She said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. <laughs> That's awesome. The hidden person of Esther was powerfully beautiful. In fact, Everyone liked Esther, and that's amazing. Can you imagine the cat fighting that would have happened in an ancient harem? <laughs> and yet Esther chapter 2 verse 15 says Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther was really pretty, and sometimes we think that pretty people have it easy, but it actually made Esther's life really hard because she won this national beauty contest, and she got to marry the king. She was picked for her external beauty, but her new husband was an ungodly man with too much power, and he was an angry, uh, angry drunk. So what did she do? How did she respond to her real-life situation, which is totally foreign for any of us, but we can understand some of the basics here, ending up in a scenario that I did not plan for. This isn't the husband that I dreamt I would have, and so on. What did she do? She used her brains and her heart to influence her husband. Esther knew how to influence her husband. She had this really creative plan that took advantage of every aspect of her beauty. She dressed in royal robes. She invited him to this mysterious feast. She crafted this intriguing conversation, and she spoke truth plainly when she had an opportunity and eventually she convinced him to save the Jewish people from genocide. Esther was not a weak, silly woman. She inserted herself into the most important national politics of the day and the Jews still honor her annually as one of the most important people in human history. Esther is a perfect example of dignified beauty and so is Ruth. Remember we talked about Ruth a few weeks ago she worked hard in the, in the fields to take care of a depressed mother-in-law. She surprised Boaz in the middle of the night with snuggling up in her best PJs and, all, and, and everything. And it's an interesting parallel to Esther using beauty to influence. A lot of times we think if we're going to change somebody or get them to do something, we've got to come at them with kind of a hard, like, why won't you type of a thing. And yet we see over and over again these women influencing really powerful men, good men, bad men, influencing them with a gentle and quiet spirit. Ruth's goal was to bless Naomi. And Esther's goal was to bless the Jewish people. And both of them influenced powerful men to work salvation. And this is the best kind of influence. Esther and Ruth both influenced their husbands to redeem people. It was about mission for them. So you see this combination of a gentle and quiet spirit that influences powerful men to do great things. Not just, why won't you fix that garage door type of things, but like actually changing the world. 
Of course, we should be offended by Esther's trapped subservience, the harem, 12 months of body prep before she could audition to, to marry the guy. Of course, that's offensive. But is there any doubt that Esther overcame cultural evil and saved the ancient Jews from genocide? Too bad Hitler didn't meet her. I'm not kidding. Any man would be improved by such a powerfully beautiful woman. And every woman can achieve the imperishable beauty of Esther. They do not need Victoria's Secret or an independent career in order to change the world. God designed us as instruments of change in a world that is dark and fallen. And he created a design for family that provides a backbone not only for joyful, Jesus-loving children, but even for churches. He created this design as a place where all of us can confront what's really going on in our hearts and learn how to grow up. He created this perfect design for the redemption of his creation. And our goal is to think long and hard about how to follow his design. I'll close with this from Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. May that be true for all of us as we engage the real world as men and women. Let's pray. God in heaven, we really do live in difficult times. We are surrounded by trouble and situations that we did not ask for. And yet, somehow, we are willing to admit that you are a great designer, not only of galaxies, but of our very lives. And we also admit that your testimonies are sure and the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we think through how to apply this passage to our hearts, to our families, to our church so that the world would know that you are God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.